0: O oh come, O oh come, Amen. first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope. Our hope is in God, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of all things. He is the one through whom God has promised to save and redeem his people. We light this candle today to remind us that he is our hope, and the hope of the world. We thank God for the promises he has made to us and for the light he has brought into the world. Please pray with me. O God of hope, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray you to send your light into our hearts at this time. Help us to be ready for the day and the hour of Christ's final appearing. Live in us and help us to live in you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us so that our worship, our celebration, our time of preparation may all be pleasing unto you, now and forevermore. Amen.
1: Amen. We gather to worship him. We're so glad that you are here today and welcome you to this uh, time of worship. Before you're seated, take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here today in worship. One announcement uh, for you is there are a number in the bulletin, but uh, each year we, uh, we put together uh, an Advent devotional guide. These are for the four Sundays of Advent and then also Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and uh, We have some in the back. Please feel free to take as many as you can use. You can use them individually or with some others. We often use them as family. Uh, they have a brief meditation, scripture reading, a carol to sing prayers and lighting the Advent candles in your home. So we encourage you to take those. They also were sent out with the highlights this week as well, if you get those. But if not, please feel free to pick up one this morning before you go. Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Father, in this season of Advent, when we grasp for power and things, Remind us that Christ came in weakness, in humility as a child. When we allow darkness to overcome the light, forgive us, Lord. When we reduce Christmas to things, have mercy on us, Father. When hardness of heart keeps us from seeing and believing in your Son, let your grace fill us. Forgive our doubt and renew our hopes in Christ alone that we may watch and wait and once more hear the glad story of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.
2: Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 Nevertheless there will be no more gloom on those who are in, were in distress in the past we he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned you have enlarged the nations and increased their joy They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boots used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Can you invite the congregation to stand and sing the Gloria Patre as the ushers come forward for our givings? Holy Father, you have given us so much, and we pray that you would help us to be ever grateful and content in all that we have. May we give back to you but a portion of all that you have given us with gracious hearts. Amen.
1: In that spirit of adoration, we turn to the Lord in prayer, knowing that he hears us as we offer to him our prayers. As we pray together, if you would like to come and use the altar rail as the place where you offer your prayers, please join me. Father, we bow in adoration not only because you are the King of all, the only true God, sovereign and holy, but because your love reached down to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, We worship and adore you because Christ came into this world and into our lives in order to redeem us, to save us from our sin, and to give us life. In this Advent season, we desperately want to know you more. We desperately want to open our lives to you that you might fill us more and more with your spirit. That we might know Christ in the very depths of our being. Father, we pray today not only for our needs, but for the needs of those among us, around us, beyond us. We pray for all who are grieving today. I think especially of Diane Emmons and her family, the recent death of her mother, and pray that your comforting presence would be with them. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health, whatever form that may come, and we ask for your healing power, Upon Ellis Bratzman and Vesta Mullen, upon Tim Nichols and Bruce Brenneman, upon Bill Roski, upon Bevrett and Micah Christensen, upon Linda Roth and Alton Shea, upon Isla Shea and Dick Gould and Edna Howard and Crystal Blake, Emily Crickler, and others who in this moment we remember and for whom we offer prayers. Father, we pray for the work of your people throughout the world. And we think of our own nation and the needs that are here we do pray for peace and for resolution in a that only you can bring in Ferguson, Missouri. Work miraculously there, Lord, not just to to end protests, but to bring true healing, change. And not only for them, but in our hearts as well and the various prejudices and biases and injustices that we so often ignore. Father, we pray for the work of the Wesleyan Native Ministries. We think especially of the Sailways and the the New Life Church, and we pray for their outreach and drama and music and all that they are doing. And we pray that you you will multiply their efforts and bless their efforts to Reach out to people who need you or yearning for you. We pray for your continued healing. People who have been most affected by the Ebola virus. Bring an end to this epidemic and bring healing to people. And we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters who suffer persecution, violence. We pray for your protection and courage for them. We pray for this world in which people have, don't have adequate food or water, shelter, security. And we pray that you will bring peace and justice. We will see your grace poured out on our needy world. Father, thank you for all that you do in our lives. Continue to help us as we serve you. And in this Advent season, give us ears to hear you. And eyes to see you and hands to reach out for you. And feet to go in your name. And hearts that are yearning for you. Fill us with love for you and for others through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who came into this world as a baby. And went to the cross for our sins and rose that we might have life. And is returning to give us eternal life. And who leaves us the model for prayer which we now pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.
3: Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. joy my soul. The hour is hasting on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone. Kill
2: After the reading of the Gospel, children ages 2 through 5 will be dismissed for Children's Church. Um, Our Gospel reading today is Matthew 25, 1 through 13. You please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, "'Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him!' When all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, the foolish ones said to the wise, "'Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out.' "'No,' they replied, There there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go into those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Be seated. The word um, Advent comes from Latin meaning to come or coming. And the, the season is typically about the focusing our attention on the coming of Christ as a baby incarnate word of God. And we spend this season preparing ourselves for the celebration of Christmas, and it is a right thing to do. but throughout the history of the church, the church has also used the seasons time to prepare for the second advent of christ, a time when we think about not just Christ who has come but Christ who is coming and when I Looked over the questions that you submitted and saw that some of them were related to the second coming. It made sense to take this Sunday to talk about that. And one of the questions that comes to our mind, of course, is when is Jesus going to return? I have figured that out. August 19th, 2059. About 3.42 in the morning. That is my 100th birthday. And I figure that's as good a time as any other. (laughs) Let's just make it a big day, right? And according to my mother, that's pretty close to the exact moment. So, exactly 100 years. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, there's no way to know that. Through the history, people have had some revelation they felt from God or they have spent time doing the math in the prophecies and have said to people, I figured it out. It's this day, or at the very least, it's this year. And it's amazing to me how many people follow them. I guess if you're charismatic enough, if you're convincing enough, there are people who will say, I'll buy into that, sure, let's do it. And, of course, we know they always end up wrong. And it makes sense because Jesus is very clear. He says in a number of places, nobody knows the day or the hour. The disciples want to know, too. They ask him as well. And he says, nobody knows. The angels don't know. He says, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. There's something in us that wants to know when things are going to happen. We like that. I don't, I don't know if it's because we like control, probably. If we like to be on to have the inside track on things, probably. A certain sense of we, you know, we know things other people don't know. We want to know things like that. But the scriptures keep telling us, you're never going to know. No one's going to know. Because when it comes to the second coming of Christ, it's not about understanding when. It's about understanding what. It's about understanding being prepared. All the warnings of Scripture, all the prophecies are to help us prepare for the coming of Christ, not to give us something resources to set dates about the coming of Christ. And over and over again, we hear Jesus saying this. I mean, just a sampling of some of, the, some of the things that Jesus says about preparing. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Be always on the watch. Prepare. Be ready. Watch. And the question for us is, what does it mean to watch? What does it mean to be prepared? What does it mean to be ready for the coming of Christ? There are a lot of ways in which we could approach that. One of them is in this parable, Jesus tells, that we read a few moments ago. And in this parable, Jesus says there are two groups of people. There are people that are prepared and there are people who are not. And Jesus says the people prepared, let's call them wise. And the people who are not, let's call them fools. The question is what does that mean? What does it mean to be wise and foolish? What does it mean to be prepared? This isn't the first time Jesus has used those terms to divide people. Remember back in Matthew 7. At the end of the chapter, Jesus tells a little story about two guys building their houses. And the one builds his house on solid rock, and the other one builds his house on sand. And Jesus says, the one who builds on sand is a fool. The one who builds on rock is wise. Because when the storm comes, the wind, the rain, everything comes against them. The guy whose house is built on rock takes it, stands firm. The guy on sand, his house crumbles. In Sunday school, we used to sing a little song. You know, wise man built his house upon the rock. Probably sang that if you went to Sunday school. And we sort of sing that song and read that story We separate it from its context. But that is the very last thing Jesus says in what Matthew records as the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Jesus is telling us people who are wise are people who embrace what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And people who are foolish are people who ignore it. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around the church for long... You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you say, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's what it means to be wise. But that's not how most everybody else views wisdom and foolishness. Because Jesus says, if you're wise, then you aren't afraid to acknowledge your sin and to confess it. The world tells us, hide that stuff. Jesus says, if you're wise, you think about meekness. The world says, are you out of your mind? Jesus says, if you're wise, then you actually thank him for persecution. You see it as a blessing. The rest of the world says, what? You go on through the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and the people who are wise are the people who, when they're struck on one cheek, turn the other. People who are wise forgive our enemies, actually love our enemies. We go the extra mile. People who are wise do practice their spiritual disciplines in a way, not that people will look at us and say, wow, they are so spiritual, look at everything they do but in a way that people don't even realize we're doing it. No recognition. People who are wise are hesitant to pass judgment on other people and the speck in their eye because they are pretty cognizant of the log sticking out of our own eye. People who are wise aren't just concerned about doing right things, but the spirit, the attitude that's motivating doing those things. People who are wise say, how can I live in such a way that I give away as much as I can? And the, the world measures success and wisdom in a very different way. In fact, you could say that the the what Jesus teaches in this in the Sermon on the Mount and actually throughout all of his teaching is in many ways the antithesis of how the rest of the world views wisdom and success. And it's the difference between being prepared and not. See, being prepared isn't just a momentary decision that we didn't forget about. Being prepared is a lifestyle. It, it's not just this moment, but it's how we live our lives. Being wise and foolish and, and and embracing the Sermon on the Mount means that that takes over every part of our being, every moment of our day, every decision we make, every relationship we're in, all that we do. It, it impinges on all of it. It's not just some moment when we happen to be gathered in church and then we go do what we want it is what we do in church but it's what we do every other moment when we're not here too it's the moments when people see us and the moments when people don't all of it is connected to preparation and being people who are wise following christ and sometimes I think we have this mindset that, you know, following Christ is that we make this momentary decision and it's not that we forget about it. We, it, just, it just doesn't, it isn't, isn't on the forefront of our lives. It isn't, isn't everything that we live. But Christ is very clear about that misperception. I kind of suspect that might be one of the reasons at least why we don't get any kind of date setting from Jesus. Because you look at what happens to the early church, you know, the people of Thessalonica believe that they figured out the date, and it's going to just be a few weeks off, and so they sell all their possessions, they give away everything they have, they pack their bags, and they go sit on a hill and wait, and they keep waiting, and pretty soon they get hungry, and they're getting cold. So they go back to the church and they say, we need you to feed us and to take care of us while we wait for Jesus. And Paul writes to them in the second letter and he says, look, that's not the way this thing works. It's not you just you just sit back and you're idle and you wait. You know, Jesus talks so much about watching. It isn't just looking out the window. You know, when I was a child and my grandparents were coming to a visit and I knew it was getting close. I'd sit at the big picture window waiting for them, for their car to pull down the street and into the driveway. And sometimes I think that's the way people view the second coming of Jesus. We just sit with our nose up against the glass. We don't don't do anything about this world. We don't try to make it a better place. We don't try to to do things for Christ. We're just focused on seeing Jesus. And Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about. Of course, the other part of it is, if you think there's a date, we think there's a date in mind and we've nailed that down. What's human nature? I'll just kind of wait till the last minute, live how I want to, and then I'll turn things around. You know, I'll wait till at least, well, not August 18th, because that'd be cutting it a little bit close. Maybe August 1st, 2059. Or better yet, maybe 2058. I just need to give myself enough time to kind of, you know, make up for whatever. Human nature being what it is, we have a tendency to say, let's see how close to the edge I can get and still be all right. I mean, isn't that why stores stay open so late on Christmas Eve? All the husbands that wait until the last minute to do their shopping? I read the other day that it's one of the busiest shopping days of the year. Why? Because it's, we can. Because we know we've got that little window of time and until 6 o'clock on the 24th, we can keep shopping. And so we wait. But it belies the skewed view that we sometimes have of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily about going to heaven. While that's going to be awesome, but it's about living now for Jesus. It's about living in the grace and the joy of Christ. The best life we can live is not, I'll do whatever I want and then... Make up for it at the end. The best life. Is living full out. For Christ. Because only in Christ. Is there joy. And peace. And love. And the fulfillment of the deepest yearnings. In our souls. And so many people miss that. Sometimes. We miss that. When I think about. Waiting watching preparing my mind always drifts back to when i was in seminary and uh, the first three years i worked in the emergency room at the university of kentucky medical center you may be thinking whoa what in the world did you do in the emergency room nothing medical just want to set your minds at ease i didn't i didn't do surgery on anyone Uh, i got to see a lot of things that was fascinating but I, I was a clerical assistant, so I'm you know I'm everybody's favorite person. They get to the emergency room, and before anybody can see you, I need your name and your insurance information. And before you leave, I'm going to need some money. I always love that part of the job. But you know, I, I think about preparation because there's no place where people are where preparation is more important than in the emergency room, because you never know what's going to come through the door. It might be a little child with a cold. It might be someone from an automobile accident, a fire, gunshot wound, stabbing. I mean, We saw it all. But what I found fascinating is that no one in the emergency room was pacing the floor anxious and panicked. What if we don't know what to do when they get here? What if we're not ready? What if we're not prepared? I mean, none of that. Because everyone knew what they were supposed to do. Everyone had a job, and everyone knew what their job was, and they knew how to do it. And the other thing that always interested me, and I would ask the nurses about this as soon as someone was released from a room, two things happened without exception the room was cleaned, and the room was restocked every single time. Examining room, trauma room, didn't make any difference. As soon as that patient left that room, custodial people would come and clean it and nurses would restock whatever supplies that were used every single time. And when the next patient came, they didn't have to wonder, do we have enough stuff? They didn't have to worry, is is everything in its right place? They always knew that it was. And when you live with that kind, that spirit sense of preparation, then the rest of the time when we weren't facing a trauma or dealing with patients, it was just normal life. And we sat around and we'd talk about UK basketball and we'd talk about, you know, what was going on in people's relationships and their homes and their children. And we'd, we would talk, some have a lot of spiritual conversations. And we would eat. And sometimes people would sleep. Isn't that the fascinating thing about this parable? Jesus doesn't condemn any of the virgins for sleeping while they're waiting. No one gets in trouble for falling asleep. They can fall asleep. It's fine. Because they're ready. And the call comes. They wake up. Let's go. At least five of them. And that image in the emergency room of preparing, it's not panic. It's just being ready. Because things are in place. And when you know that things are in place. Doesn't mean everything is perfect in our lives. But there is this sense of peace. And we just live daily. We live our lives. We go about our business. We work. We love. We care for people. We go We go through our lives. We shop. We cook. We clean. We do what we need to do. Because... We aren't in a panic. We live in peace because we're ready. One of the things that I find important when we talk about the the second coming of Christ, I actually like the term second appearing better. There's nothing wrong with second coming, but it, it does sort of hint at this idea that Jesus has gone away from us, that he has no no place in our lives. He's distant, far from us, and then someday he'll come back into our lives. But the scriptures teach us that he is with us through the Holy Spirit. And what will happen on this day, on the day of the Lord, what will happen is that he will be revealed to us. And all the things of life that are cloudy, when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 13 that we look through a glass darkly and a mirror that doesn't really give us a good image. When Jesus comes back, when Jesus is revealed, all that's going to be cleared up. And in that day, all of a sudden, we will truly understand what living wisely means. And on that day we will truly understand God's purposes and his plans and his presence in our lives. Because Christ is coming. Because Christ is revealed. Now there is a place in that revelation of Christ's revealing of Himself and the second advent of judgment. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you see it in this in this parable we read today. You see it in other parables of Jesus. You you hear it from Paul and Peter. There is definitely a sense of judgment. In the creed, we we talk about how he will return to judge the, the living and the dead. There will be judgment. But it's judgment in grace, not judgment in vengeance. It is not a day when Christ will say, finally, people are going to get what you deserve. It will be my grace is upon you. And yes, some people will simply have lived their lives in such a way that they have rejected Jesus and they won't have anything to do with Jesus. And as we talked a few weeks ago about heaven and hell, when that day comes and the judgment, we won't we won't just all of a sudden now decide that we have lived our lives completely rejecting Jesus. And now all of a sudden, because we're facing the judgment, we're going to want Jesus. Well, what will happen at the judgment is that we will simply simply be the fulfillment of the desires of our hearts. You know, and so Lewis says in great divorce, you know, people are, are in hell because heaven offers them nothing that they want. And heaven offers everything that we want. And so there is judgment, but it's not vengeance, it's Grace. It is the grace of Christ coming to us, not just as a babe in a manger, but through the cross and the empty tomb. John says that, tells us that Jesus says he came into the world not to condemn the world. That's not the purpose of his coming, to, to bring condemnation to the world, but to save the world, to redeem the world, to free the world. Jesus says in Luke 4 that I've come to set captives free, recovery of sight to the blind, and. And to bring healing and grace. And yes, some people are going to reject it. But it's still grace. You know, I, I've, I've been pondering, thinking about the this whole idea of the second coming and how we view it. And I don't know about you, but my... My thoughts growing up about the second coming were predominantly fear. Maybe it was the movies that they showed us in church, you know, that scared the life out of you. I guess they were intended to scare the sin out of you or something. But, you know, but basically we grew up, when you heard the word second coming, it was fear. And granted... There are people who, because they've rejected Christ, probably ought to feel fear. But not for those of us who are in Jesus. For those of us who who are followers of Christ, it shouldn't be fear. It ought to be joy. It, It is the moment when we will receive all the fullness of everything Christ has promised us. It is the moment when all the things that we have done for him and with him and what he's done in us will reach their fulfillment. And it's going to be awesome. We will be with him, see him face to face. All the the unclear things will be crystal clear. And Christ will bring everything as... N.T. Wright says, we'll bring everything to rights. It will be the most glorious day ever. As Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection and, and the appearing of Christ and what it will be like with him in eternity. And he gets to the end of that and he says, therefore, because of Christ, because Christ is appearing, because Christ is second advent, our labor is not in vain. All the ways that we prepare, all the ways that we call wisdom and the rest of the world calls foolishness, will make sense and will be worth it. And all the work we do for the kingdom, all the ways in which we sacrifice and give, responding to the grace of Christ, will be clear. And it'll be celebration. It's a wedding feast they're going into. It's the most joyous thing in the world. And if I could, if I could convince us of anything today, is that if we are in Christ, the words second coming, second appearing, second advent shouldn't evoke fear and anxiety, but joy. And anticipation and blessing. Paul writes to Timothy and says, This is our blessed hope. Everything that happens, everything that doesn't make sense is going to make sense because Christ will appear and we will be with him. Contrary to his first coming, that basically takes place in silence and hiddenness, just a few people knowing when Jesus comes second time, it won't be a secret to anyone. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm kind of thinking that the whole rapture idea that has been embedded into, into our, the church over the last hundred and some years, I'm not sure that's exactly the way it's going to be. As if people are going to look around and say, what just happened? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Didn't see anything. Didn't hear anything. They're just gone. I don't think so. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, There will be the shout of heaven and the trumpet will sound and Christ will appear. And when Christ appears in all of his glory, I think we're going to know that. As one kid said, when he heard the story about that, he said, you think they're going to let school out early that day? Yeah. I think maybe they will. Because it's going to be awesome. If you don't know Christ, then what a great time to open your heart to him. But if you do, however imperfect we all walk our journey. If our heart's desire is Christ, then let's celebrate His promise. Let's rejoice in His appearing. And let's live as agents of His kingdom, sharing that grace and love and mercy and joy and anticipation with everyone we possibly can. The grace of Jesus. Father, thank you for the promise you've given us in Christ. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with anticipation as we watch and wait and prepare and live in your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord our coming King Amen Please stand with me as we sing the closing hymn